You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. This morning we're going to look at, we're going to continue to look at the, uh, the letter from the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy in the New Testament, in which he's supplying instructions for his young protege, Timothy, on how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. This, this household of faith, he says it's the pillars, the foundation of truth. And we're now all the way into the fifth chapter. And uh, up on the screen, you'll see the word propriety. It's probably not a word that we use very much in today's parlance. It's probably not a huge part of our vocabulary. I think it used to be more. But it, it has to do with, with simply what's, what's proper. A few years ago, Jan and I had the chance to go to, to England. And what's proper in England? Well, it's a proper cup of tea. And so we went, I um, sort of, I was taken to a, a high tea and uh, my wife really enjoyed it, and I had some nice little sandwiches. But I learned how to make a proper cup of tea. And that's what propriety is, is it's all about. It's this condition of, of being right, being appropriate, being fit. And at the beginning of this uh, fifth chapter, the Apostle Paul wants to talk about what are some um, proper ways of relating to others. What are some proper sorts of relationships that we're going to be involved in in the church. He begins in chapter 5, verse 1, if you'll look there, he describes four different types of relationships. He says, uh, he's writing to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I remember very clearly when I was um, starting as a young associate pastor at, uh, it was a church plant uh, in Illinois, the northern part of Illinois, and my senior pastor actually took this advice from First Timothy and, and applied it to me. And he said, he said just clearly, John, when you're dealing with an older person in the church, he says, I want you to always show them respect. Treat them just the same way that you would treat your father. You know, you're not yelling at them. You're not bossing them around. You're, 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 you're treating them with, with dignity. That was very wise. The, the head elder in our church, a guy named D. Helvey, he was a, a very high-up executive for the Sears Corporation when there was a Sears Corporation, but it was a big deal back then. And the, the more important you were, the higher you were in the Sears Tower, the higher up in the, in the stories. He was pretty high up. But I learned with, with D that it didn't matter what my idea was, it, it was never going to happen until he thought it was his idea. So if I tried to argue with him, I would never get anywhere. But if I would treat him as I would a father, and I was like a younger son to him, and make suggestions and continue to make suggestions, sooner or later, if it was a good idea, Dee was a very wise man, but sooner or later, we'd be at an elders meeting, 
And all of a sudden, D would say, why don't we do this? And it would be my idea. <laughs> and I'd say, D, that is the greatest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and then it would happen. Because I treated him as, as I would a father with respect. Treat the younger men as your brothers. The, the, the older women as mothers. The younger women as sisters with absolute purity. This is wise advice. This is wise advice for all of us sitting here to relate to these different age categories in a proper, in an, in an appropriate way. It's, it's because these relationships, these four relationships, they're not just arbitrary. You go all around the world and you'll see these things in action. When we served in the Philippines, if a young Filipino child would approach me, they would always say, bless, and I would hold out my hand, and he would take it to his forehead. It was a sign of respect for the older, for the elderly. In most places around the world, someone who looks like me actually is considered worthy of respect. <laughs> it's in the West. It's in it, where we have this sort of um, almost a cult of, of youth where um, old age isn't as respected. But in most places throughout most history, uh, you'll see that um, the elderly are respected. So when I was a young boy, I don't know if we do anymore, but uh, on the bus, if an elderly man or a, a woman came in, of course I had to stand up. And even today, my mother's been gone a long time, but I hear that voice in my, in my head saying, John, get up. You know, <laughs> and so I have to get up because I'm a lot more afraid of my mother, even though she's not here, than I am of any cultural moray that's that's presently happening. So she she ground that into me pretty well. So Paul says there's there's a proper way for relating to each other in terms of these age categories, and then the heart of this passage, he wants to say there's a there's a proper way for the church to to act in regards to widows. So he says in verse 3, that's the next slide, he says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. There's a proper recognition for widows. He's, he's saying in a sense, the first question is, who are the widows that are truly in need? Who, who are the ones that it's fitting and appropriate for the church to take care of. But the second he's asking, what are the, the right relationships? Who should be taking care of these needs? So there's, there's a sense of propriety in, in, in both sides. Who's the right sort of widow? Who's the right sort of provider? This actually passage uh, has meaning to me because I grew up in the home of a widow. I didn't have a father. He passed away when I was quite young. And there's a great deal in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, about caring for the widow and for the fatherless. And I'm thankful to say that the church that I was in as a boy uh, did, uh, or, you know, they, they took us under their wing and cared for us appropriately. So it is a responsibility of the church that if there is a, a widow in true need, the church has a responsibility for them. Just as in the Old Testament, there was an obligation to care for the widow and for the fatherless. But who is this widow that is, is properly recognized as being 
in need. Well, and who should properly take care of them? That's the next slide. The Apostle Paul wants to say that it is, first of all, it's a family responsibility. There's a fitting or apt relationship with the extended family and the widow. The family is, is given by God. The whole structure, the institution, marriage, children, family, extended family, we, we didn't invent that. So when we're, we're involved in a, in a wedding ceremony, we didn't create this. We actually are, when we're getting married, we're saying we're entering into something that God ordained. It's far bigger than us. It's even bigger than a sense of my own personal momentary happiness. I'm entering into God's plan for human flourishing. There's that word. It's how God structured human society so that we would flourish, we would do well. And that's enforced or reinforced over and over again in the Old Testament. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. He says it's the first command with a promise because it says if you do that, it will go well with you in the land. There'll be a a, a flourishing. There'll be a sense of well-being. I can't, you know, you, you could just amass all of the sociological, psychological research to over and over and over again. It says that, that moms, dads, husbands, wives, children do better in intact families. It's, it's just grades, uh, financial earnings, well-being, the lack of addictions. All those things map on very well to the sort of a family structure that God says is proper for human beings to be in. So he says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first learn, or these should learn first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents because this is pleasing to God. It's just not some pragmatically uh, uh, helpful thing, it's actually pleasing to God because it's expressing the way that he made human beings to be. The widow who is really in need, he says in verse 5, and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, they've denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And in a sense, Paul's saying, look, even the unbelievers know this. Even those who, who reject you know, the faith of the Old and New Testaments, reject Jesus, they understand that there's a basic responsibility of children towards parents, sons and daughters, especially towards the widow. Now, this was essential in biblical times because the family was the widow's sole means of support. When my father died, my mother was able, in, you know, in the contemporary modern society, to go find a job, right? So she went to work, and, and she cared for her family. She's actually uh, became my brothers and my hero of her selfless giving for us, raising two boys who weren't always that easy 
to raise. But so she had opportunities. But in biblical times, those, those opportunities didn't exist for an older woman. There wasn't a, a labor market out there for her to go join. She was dependent upon family. And if the family didn't take care of her, she was destitute. So even the unbelievers understood that there was this proper relationship and that family was essential for survival in biblical, to, in biblical terms, biblical times. Now, as I mentioned, my mom didn't uh, have to be dependent upon the church because she could go get a job. But the principles are still there. There was still a, a proper relationship of family to my mother. She did not want to ever uh, move in with us, although we, we offered more than once. She was a very independent woman. She wanted to be in her own house, and, and the Lord was gracious. She lived in her own house until the day she passed away. But that doesn't mean that we weren't caring for her. Uh, my brother, my sister, even my son Richard, when he was at the University of South Florida, he moved in with her to be his, her night companion. As Paul said, children, grandchildren. So she was always in the, in the care of the family. And if there had ever been any financial need, of course, we would have taken care of that. But she didn't necessarily want to move in and live with us. Now, in, in the Philippines, extended families all live together. And it would be considered a scandal if my mother, widowed mother, wasn't, wasn't living in our house. But circumstances vary. Cultures vary. But the principle behind it, that there's a proper relationship of children, grandchildren, to their parents and grandparents, that doesn't change at all. And so Paul asked, who's, who's this proper widow in need? He's saying it's not the widow who has family to care for them. It's not the widow who has children, grandchildren, extended family who will provide for their needs. The church doesn't have the responsibility there. The family has the responsibility there. But now we ask, who exactly is this proper widow that the church would take care of? And that's the next slide. What are the qualifications for the widow's list? And we'll see where that list idea comes from. He says, now no widow, in verse 9, may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, and helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. What's this list? Well, apparently in the, in the early church, people who were destitute like this, widows who were like this, were brought into some sort of, of organization within, within the church. They were, they were included in a list of those who would get help. You remember in Acts chapter 6, the reason they appoint the early deacons was because the, the, the widows in the Hellenistic churches, the Greek-speaking Jewish churches in Jerusalem, were being overlooked in terms of the, the food distribution. So from the earliest days of the church, those widows who were in real need were considered to be a, a special group within the church. And we're going to read later on that they apparently took some sort of vow, devoting themselves to the service of God and the service of the saints. But Paul says, don't just put anyone on that list. Now that may even seem a little harsh to us. 
Paul is saying that your, in a sense, compassion for people in need shouldn't just be indiscriminate. Just because someone has a need doesn't mean that you simply, without any discretion, try to take care of it or respond to it. He says, I want these widows to exemplify those who live a a, a life pattern after Christ and those who are in service to the church. It's not indiscriminate. And I think the reason that, that Paul says this is a very, very basic principle that it's never loving, it's never loving to simply try to relieve somebody's present pain if that can that really confirms them in a lifestyle that's moving away from God. Now, we see the need and we want to respond, but if in our response we simply enable, sort of ground them in in a life and a behavior that continually moves them away from God, the long-term prospect for that is not loving. The long-term prospect for that is God's judgment, punishment, and separation. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you confirming these widows in a lifestyle that is leading them and others in the church away from God. So be discriminating about that. Now, it's interesting, um, just even this evening, uh, Rich Miller was encountering a, a, a man who looks for aid pretty regularly from this church. Right, Rich? Yeah. Yeah, I had the same problem when I was a pastor in St. Petersburg. My church was situated right over the, the Howard Franklin Bridge that came from Tampa. And so I was right on the route of, of homeless people. And they know very quickly those churches who, who take care of you. And so and we, would, we would supply food. I took so many to the VA uh, hospital there. That's the saddest thing. So many of them were veterans and took many, many to the VA. But it became overwhelming. So what we did is we, we created a coalition of a bunch of other churches, and we brought in the Pacific Garden Mission, and we actually set up um, a mission, uh, a homeless mission, in the city of St. Petersburg. But as we were beginning to do that, I, we went around and we interviewed all the other places like the Salvation Army, and the city of St. Petersburg had a sort of rescue mission, and we went down and interviewed the lady, and she took us around, and the police would bring people off the street and they could get a, a bed and a shower and a meal. And so I was asking her, well, what are your conditions for being brought in here? And she said, oh, well, they have to be drunk. <laughs> I said, well, what? She said, oh, yeah, they, 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 the police pick them up, they're inebriated, and this is where they can sleep it off. Well, the exact opposite is true in, in the mission we started. If you were drunk, you, you didn't come in. You've, you decided that you'd rather spend the evening with, with, with your, your alcohol. That was your choice. But if you're going to come in and stay at our shelter, uh, you would make the opposite choice. Because what that shelter was actually doing, it was encouraged them to get drunk. You need, you need a shower? You need a hot meal? You need a place to stay? Well, the easiest way <laughs> in St. Petersburg was to go out and get drunk and do something so that the police would pick you up. And that was your ticket. And so what, I, what dawned on me was that this shelter wasn't for the homeless. It wasn't helping them in any way. This shelter was simply for the convenience of the city. 
If there's a drunk person, we got a place to stick them. And we'll just get them out of sight, get them out of mind. But we don't really care about the long-term effects of what that shelter means. That's an illustration of being discriminating. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't put someone on this list if you're just enabling a lifestyle that's going to take them and others away from Christ. So there was a, there was a qualification for the widow's list. And one of the qualifications is that he didn't really want younger widows on the list. And we read that in 5, 11 through 15. He says, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sexual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry, and there's nothing wrong with marrying. But it looks like they've taken a vow not to. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. They were pledging themselves to the care of the church and apparently the service of the church. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And they, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned to follow Satan. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, and especially in this context, remember again, because women are not entering into the, the outside labor force. There's just not that much uh, labor or work to do. Their job was really in the home, raising children, taking care of households, directing the affairs of the household. And, and if they have no such household to care for, they're simply idle. There's no other work for them to be doing. And the principle applies both to, to male and female. When we're, when we're idle, when we have nothing to do, when there's really no, no purpose behind our days and what we're doing, it leads to trouble. I don't care if you're a young widow, you're a young man, but a, a, a life of idleness, of purposelessness, inevitably leads to to trouble. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't want the church supporting that. You can think of many instances apart even from, uh, you know, from widows, young widows, to men where, where we're really faced more and more with the temptation in our present culture for, for a type of idleness. The, I think the internet is a great example of how you can just while away your life in a, in a purposeless manner and it, it, it does lead to saying things, doing things, seeing things that we ought not to. And so there's, there's a principle here, especially when you're young, you know, that your life should be given to things of purpose, of meaning. There's, there's work to do. And you should seek it out and find it and fill your days with, with meaningful labor and activity. To be idle, to sit at home, to sit before a screen, the Apostle Paul is saying, you'll get into trouble. Satan will use this and push you away. And so there's, he's discriminating. Here's the people I want on the list, those who can devote themselves to this sort of behavior in helping the church. And then finally, he's got one other group that is, is proper to, to provide care for widows. And these are what we might call cared for widows. That's the next slide. He says in 16, if any woman who is a believer 
has widows in her care. She should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So apparently there there were some in the church, some women in the church who had substantial means that they could take care of widows. Maybe they were uh, extended family, cousins, aunts. Maybe they were just close friends. But the Apostle Paul is saying, let them do that good work. Don't, don't use the church's resources, which could be used for those who are really in need, have no other support, who meet the qualifications that they're actually uh, um, glorifying Christ and not being known in the community as, as busybodies or slanderers. Let the church invest its funds in those ways. And so there's, that's a principle where we see that we can take care of, of needs, apart from some formal organization or church, that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do in those right sorts of circumstances. So the Apostle Paul here has tried to define, these are the proper sorts of relationships. These are, this is the proper, the fitting sort of way that these relationships should be met. But I, what, what I'm really sort of after today is sort of the, the, the background assumption to that whole discussion. And the background assumption is that there really are a set of proper relationships. And one way to, to, to describe this is there's a set of given relationships that we didn't create that come to us from God. And that's sort of the, the next slide. And this, what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is that proper help, whether it's for widows or for others, proper relationships. Remember those first four relationships, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. All of that maps onto the structured patterns that come out of human creation. This is how God made us. He didn't just make us as, as solo, individuated, uh, atomized, uh, independent particles. But he, he, he made us in terms of a set of structured or given relationships that really define who we are and, and, and are given, as we said before, for the sense of human flourishing. This is where we're going to do well. Now, the reason this is important is, and you know as well as I do, that this has really become one of the, the central questions or conflicts of today, at least in the West. The majority of the world still believes this. They have no trouble believing that God made us in terms of, of, of set patterns, uh, set structures. He made us men, women, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, granddads, grandmothers, elderly, young, and that, that there are proper relationships built into those structures. It's really only in the West, the very minority view in the terms of the history of the world and, and in terms of the, the whole population of the world that has begun to doubt that there is anything given about human life. And so really the central question uh, right now that, that's really behind uh, so many of these moral conflicts, political conflicts, is simply this. Is, is our, are our lives simply constructed by us, by our desires, by our whim, by some social forces? Are they, are they plastic, malleable, that we're going to build them any way that we want? Or are our lives given? Is there a givenness, a built-in structure that comes from the very beginning of creation 
that, that allows for, provides for, directs towards life, flourishing, happiness. What is a human? What is a man? What is a woman? What's a child? And of course, the biblical answers we can see from this passage, even though he doesn't address this question directly, but it's that underlying assumption that everything in this passage is built on. They're proper relationships. They're fitting, right relationships that we didn't create and that our lives need to be built upon. They need to be discovered, transmitted to the next generation. Apparently they can be doubted. Apparently they can be cast aside. So the the, the Apostle Paul is saying there are proper relationships. We need to learn them. We need to pass them on. But those proper relationships are embedded now, not just in creation, but in the fall, in the fall of man. And that's the next point, is that these given patterns of human nature, uh, nature are now a context for faith. I mean, think about this passage itself. What are we discussing? We're discussing widows. We're discussing a family structure that's not the way God originally intended. There's been a death. I can, I can <laughs> tell you from my own experience, it's not <laughs> fun. It's not the way God intended to grow up without a dad, to be a widow, to feel that sense of, of aloneness. Uh, it, was, it was a horrifying experience for my mom. So these human structures that God created in us, they now exist in the context of a fall, which means none of them work completely. They're not the way God intended them to be. They always seem to fall short. And because they, they don't operate the way they should, people get into marriages and there's conflict and they want to divorce. People have children and they think they're going to be just the, the light of their lives and the, the, the children are, are just a lot of trouble. On and on and on. These things that God built into us, they just don't simply operate on autopilot because the fallen nature of man, that rebellion of man against God, distorts every part of human experience. There's nothing exempt. There's no part of our life that's exempt, including the church, by the way. None of them operate the way that God simply intended for them to operate. And because they're no longer easy, marriages are hard, raising kids are hard, figuring out who we are as young people are hard. Whenever we, we, we run into conflict or difficulty, what we want to do is to escape, right? And so we, we step back and we begin to doubt, well, these structures aren't so great. Maybe the way to get around this pain is to abandon that structure. Maybe the way to, to get out of this difficulty is simply just to deny that those things are, are, are essential for human flourishing or are built into us. And, and the temptation is to think that it'd be better if we could just come up with a different structure. So we now live in a society that, that you know, has no-fault divorce. We, we live in a society in which um, if children are difficult, they can be disposed of. We live in a society now, uh, the, the euthanasia laws in, in Canada 
are, 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 are expanding and expanding so that if, if elderly people become inconvenient, uh, there's no need for the children or the grandchildren to have to burden themselves. So there's, there's this constant push, this constant desire to escape the structures that God has given us. And so these patterns now, instead of just simply easily always being easily able to affirm, they become a context for us to trust God. There's no marriage that doesn't go through difficulty. There's no marriage in which there isn't a time where you wonder, why in the world did I get into this thing? It'd be so much easier if I could just get out. And so even the most basic, important relationships become the context for faith, the context for trust. You have to put up with these things, these, the unreasonableness of old people like me who just don't seem to get it or see things. The irresponsibility of youth. Oh my gosh, I see that everywhere. <laughs> the, the burden of, a, of aging parents, the inconvenience of children, the, just the, 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 the fallibility of all of these structures. They become a context for faith. The analogy really is like medicine. You know, the, the human body is a, is a wonderful, a great, and incredible thing, but it's fallen. It's affected by death and decay and aging, and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And so uh, traditional medicine comes to the aid of that fallen body, but it comes to the aid of the fallen body recognizing that, that God is the one who created this body. He's the one who created us. So traditional medicine said, we'll take what's wrong and restore it to the way God made it. That's what it was supposed to do. But now we, we more and more in our culture have a desire in which medicine doesn't simply restore, but it changes, it alters, it goes beyond. And instead of saying, God is the one who created the body, we say we can be the new creators. We can create mankind in a way that we want. But in the old view, medicine was to restore. It didn't always work. But it was to repair, not to replace. And this is the same context in these human relationships, structure, family, human identity, what it means to be male or female. Yeah, they're fallen. Yeah, they often don't work. Yeah, the temptation is to throw them away. But like medicine, <laughs> the, 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 the believer says, I'm going to trust God, and what I want to do is to repair, not to replace, not to throw it away. It's not easy. There's no guarantee. It doesn't always work just like medicine. But the faith that we invest in trying to repair these structures when they don't work instead of just abandoning them, the faith that you take and invest in a marriage that's difficult or a child that's difficult or a grandparent that's difficult, the faith that you invest is never wasted. Absolutely never, ever wasted. God keeps account of that. And what he's really after in this life isn't so much that everything works well, not in a fallen world. It will work well one day. The promise is that when he returns, there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. All these relationships will be wonderful and glorious but what he wants now in a fallen world is for our faith in him to grow, for our trust in him to increase. And so he leaves difficulty, doesn't he? 
So that even in these good human relationships that are for our flourishing, when they don't work, when you invest in their repair, nothing is lost. Your faith increases. Your relationship with Christ increases. You invest in what will ultimately be your salvation, your eternal home, where all of these relationships are glorious. What do we do? Well, we, I think we can admit that we live now in a culture where there's increasing pressure to deny these given structures of human flourishing, right? Whether it's before when I was a young pastor, you know, it was no-fault divorce, let's just run out of our marriage. It's, why should we wait for marriage for sex? Let's just cohabit. And now, of course, it's gone far beyond that. What does it even mean to be a male or a female? What does it even mean to, 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 to have marriage at all? So there's an increasing pressure. I've seen it. I, I've just seen it grow in, 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 in the movement over, over the years of my life. That's not going to go away. So the application is, first of all, is, is to decide to trust. To decide to trust that God is really the one who knows about you best, who knows about your family best. The God is one who made you. He made you the way that he wanted you to be. He, he made you to be in these relationships, these families. And when difficulty comes, to decide to trust, to repair, not replace, and to invest your faith in these given proper structures. And by all means, to pass that on to your children to pass that on to your children. That's the decision I'd like for you to make today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray if there are widows in need, one hope, Lord, that we will lovingly care for them. Father, I pray if there's any in this congregation who, for one reason or another, have not cared for parents well, I ask that you would speak to them. You know, convince them of, of your forgiveness, your cleansing, your renewal, and give them a heart to see if that relationship can't be repaired and restored. Allow them to lean into that and to trust you. I know those relationships aren't always easy. I have adult children, Lord. I know they're not easy. But if any need to lean into that, I pray right now you would convict them of that, and they would say, yes, Lord, I want to repair that relationship. Lord, if there are any in here who, who are really wondering because of the pressure of our society that the, the structures that are outlined in the Bible, the assumptions of the Bible are really good and flourishing, I, I pray, Lord, you would speak to them. You would remind them of your wisdom and your goodness. You remind them that even in difficulty and, and pain and conflict, that they're Faith in you is never wasted, that they would, they would seek hard after you, that they would, they would affirm that you know what is best and they would trust. Lord, allow us to, to, to pass these things on to our children. Give us the strength and the, and the conviction and, and, of course, Lord, the love to communicate these things well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.